listeners. I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Jody Pico, author of 25 internationally best-selling novels, eight of which have debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Jody is the recipient of a host of honors, from the New England Bookseller Award for Fiction to being ranked among Princeton's top 10 most influential living alumni. Jody also holds honorary degrees from Dartmouth College and the University of New Haven, and she is a member of the advisory board for VITA. Women in Literary Arts. Hey, Jody, thanks for being on my podcast. My pleasure. Jody, I want to start with a question related to your novel that came out last year, The Book of Two Ways. It's about a woman who thinks she's about to die in a plane crash. And that near-death experience causes her to rethink some big choices that she's made in her life. So, Jody, I'd like to ask you the same question that your book asks of your readers. Did you ever wonder who you would have been if you hadn't become who you are? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have wondered. Um, there are so many, I would say, flashpoints along the way in my career and my life where things could have been very, very different for me. And starting with having teachers when I was in a big public high school who recognized that I liked to write and really encouraged me to do it to getting into Princeton where they had an undergraduate creative writing program and I could work with living, breathing authors to finding an agent who had never represented anyone before. She was just starting her business, but who said, I think I can represent you. And who's still my agent now, you know, almost 30 years later um, to the moment when my book started to do better. And my husband and I had kind of this, this heart to heart talk. And he said, okay, well, I'm going to stay home with the kids now while you go out and promote your books. And all of those things in different ways contributed to me getting to the point that I am now in my career. That said, of course, there were other times where I wasn't selling anything. And, you know, I went down and got an application from Home Depot and, you know, thought, this is it. It's over for me. Um, so there were definitely times where I thought I wasn't going to be a writer, too. Well, Home Depot's loss is our gain. <laughs> I would have been terrible at that. <laughs> you know, I have to just say as an aside, I love that your agent is the same agent you had way back when. Yeah. And not always the case, is it? No, it's not. My favorite agent story is that, you know, I had over a hundred rejections from agents before I finally found my agent. And like I said, she was just starting up and she said, I think I can represent you. And she did. She sold my first book in about three months. And many, many years later, when I was already at the top of a bestseller list, I got a query from one of the top agents in New York City who wrote to ask if I would come in. She would fly me in to talk about representation, take me out to lunch. Um, she knew I was very happily represented, but wanted to steal me away. I'm quite sure she does not remember that she was the very first agent to reject me, <laughs> but I said no. So <laughs> You were not poachable. I was not, no. Which speaks to your character, I must <laughs> say. There's a review in the Washington Post about the book of two ways, and I thought it was funny. It said, Pico, at this point in her career, could skillfully build tension in a broom closet. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I know you have a busy household, Jody, but I don't think you write in a broom closet. No, it's an attic. Close enough, but not a broom closet. 
but when I read that, I remember laughing out loud and thinking, that's pretty awesome. I might put that on my gravestone. (laughs) (laughs) There's another review of your work in the Associated Press. And they wrote, with your stories, there is always something new to learn. And when I look at the body of your work or the broad ranging subjects from school shootings and abortion and racism and most recently life during the pandemic, I wondered, is that part of what compels you to choose your story material that you want to learn something new or how do you come up with your concepts? Yeah. I mean, look, you've taught writing and you know, probably the first adage that you're taught is write what you know. And when I was starting out, it occurred to me very quickly, I knew absolutely nothing You know, I had grown up in a really happy home with parents who were still married and loved each other. I had a little brother and I liked him. I didn't have anywhere near the amount of angst that I was supposed to have if I wanted to be a writer. And I decided that instead of writing what I knew, I was going to write what I was willing to learn. And I think that part of the magic of keeping yourself fresh for as long as I've been in this business is not writing the same book over and over and making sure that there's something challenging me every step of the way. And sometimes that is content, and sometimes it is the research and the stuff I have to learn. Sometimes it's structure, sometimes it's the narrative voice. But I do try to change things up for myself so that when I sit down to write, it feels fresh and new every time. I love that you broke open the myth of the suffering artist and that we've all had to have (laughs) terrible childhoods or we have nothing to write about. So thank you very much for that. That, That's not me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Jody, I want to switch gears and talk about musicals. Oh, great. (laughs) So first, um, congratulations on your recent virtual world premiere of Breathe. Thank you. A new musical you co-wrote about couples affected by COVID. Yes. And I know this isn't your first rodeo with musicals. You've volunteered for years to help a New Hampshire teen theater troupe perform original musicals. And the YA novels that you co-authored with your daughter have also been adapted into musicals. Right. So I'm curious, why did such a prolific novelist like yourself decide to stretch into musical theater? Basically, the reason is because I'm a fan of musical theater, and I really believe that there are some properties that sing. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. And in fact, when my daughter Sammy and I were writing Between the Lines, which was this YA series, um, it sang to me. I could hear it. I could hear music behind it. And I really wanted to try to turn that into a musical. And, you know, seven years ago, we started doing just that. And uh, we have had a remarkable creative team in place. The guy who was the book writer is a guy named Tim McDonald who invited me to help him work on this libretto, which is how I learned how to write a libretto that was Broadway bound. And he became my writing partner for my musicals since then. We had such a good time working on that show that as a creative team, we didn't want to stop working. And so we all sat down and we were like, hmm, if you could pick any other book that I didn't write, you know, to adapt as a musical, what would you pick? And we all came up with The Book Thief. And luckily, I had met Marcus Zusak at an event once, and I wrote to him and pleaded our case and said, we really want to turn this into a musical. We think this could be really beautiful and moving and timely. And he had just given the rights to the Sydney Opera Company, and he took them back to give them to us. And that show is opening next year in the UK. Jody, I want to ask about Breathe, the new musical you co-wrote about couples affected by COVID. How did that come about? the last thing I did in the real world before it shut down was go to the wedding of a Broadway star named Ariel Jacobs, who was going to be starring in Between the Lines. And I was there with our creative team and my co-writer, Tim, 
we were sitting at a table of six people. And when we came home the next week, five of them had COVID, everyone except me. Oh my goodness. And three of them were hospitalized. When Tim was recovered, we sat down and we were like on Zoom and we were going, we got to write about this. We have to chronicle this. That's the job of an artist. And we came up with the idea of creating five different linked stories about couples that were affected in different ways by the pandemic in ways that started, you know, as almost a rom-com, a comedy of events, but became more progressively serious as you moved on through the couples until you're covering things like the protests after George Floyd's murder and what it means to actually lose someone from COVID when they have to die alone with, a, you know, an iPad held up to their face. Mm. So we really wanted you to run the gamut of all of those feelings. And musical theater has a long history of taking complicated public health issues and committing them to music and paper, uh, you know, from Rent to The Normal Heart. There are so many shows that were developed in the thick of the very circumstance that they were addressing. Speaking of remarkable creative teams, what was it like when you collaborated with your daughter on those two YA novels? It was awesome. You know, it was funny because there was still a mom-daughter element. Like I could still tell her to go clean her room if I needed to. <laughs> but we really sat side by side and wrote that entire book together. Um, the first book we wrote in my office, she insisted on having her own swivel chair and <laughs> we took turns typing and we spoke every line out loud. And of course the idea was hers. Between the Lines is about a young, awkward girl who's about 15 who becomes obsessed with a children's fairy tale when her life is kind of at its lowest. And it's really about how do you get out of a story you don't want to be in? <sighs> and so Sammy had come up with that idea when she was 13. And I was like, this is great. And so we decided we would write it together. And I thought it would be good for her to learn how to write something as big as a novel. She was always a writer. She was always incredibly creative as a child, but that's a big undertaking. And um, she really did learn how to do it. And when we left the book at the end, she was like, I'm never doing this again. I was like, because mm -hmm, I knew very well that we'd left it for a sequel. And sure enough, she was 16 when we went on book tour together, three continents. She's the only person in my family who really knows what I do for a living. And when she went to college after that, she called me up her freshman year and she was like, so I've been thinking about the sequel. And I went, oh, have you? Wow. Okay. <laughs> and we wound up writing that on speakerphone. Because she was at college, she was at Vassar. The only time she had was between 10 and midnight. And so for two hours every night, we would stay on the phone and we would talk the book out loud. And one of us typed. And that was how we created two books together. Now you can't tell her to clean her room anymore. So I can't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've had several of your books adapted for the big and the small screen. And I read on your website, your novel, Small Great Things, is soon to be a major motion picture. Soon being a relative term, but yes. <laughs> I wanted to know if you could talk a bit about the good, the bad, and the ugly of yeah. having a novel made into a movie. So I had the worst experience humanly possible with my sister's keeper. I had been asked to talk to Nick Cassavetes before he was hired as a writer-director. And when I called him, I said, the only thing I really care about in this book is that the ending stays the same. Because the ending, to be fair, in that book is a tremendous twist and sold an awful lot of copies. And People would read it and then go, here, you need to read this book so we can talk about it. So he read the book and he said, you're absolutely right. I'm not going to change the ending. And if anyone does, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to tell you myself. And I thought, great. You know, that seems really fair. And for two years, he was adapting a script and he would share it with me. And he would call me every couple of weeks and have questions for me about characters or want me to role play something with him. And the script that he eventually showed me looked a lot like the book. 
And then I got an email from a fan who worked at a casting agency. And she said, did you know they've changed the ending to My Sister's Keeper? Oh, gosh. And I called Nick up at home and he wouldn't take my phone call. So I flew to the set and he threw me off the set. And I went to the head of New Line Cinema and I said to Toby Emmerich, you are making a colossal mistake. I have very rabid fans and they are not going to deal with this well. And he said, oh, we really trust Nick. You know, he did the notebook for us, which is not exactly for me a vote of approval because I'm not a huge Nicholas Sparks fan. And so I was like, okay. And I left there and I didn't have to say a word because my readers were so pissed off that they boycotted the film and they lost money on it. And ironically, that got me more of a player's position in Hollywood for subsequent books than I'd ever had. Because when you tell Hollywood they're going to lose money, and then they do, they think that you are a genius. And so now I have much more creative control. I mean, not authoritative creative control, but definitely uh, creative input. I've had a lot of say in choosing who gets to be a writer. It's just a slightly different game now. You know, Jody, you have so much going on. And yet you're one of those authors who, despite all of your success, you don't have an assistant and you still make time to engage with your readers. In fact, you personally answer the emails that come from your fans. So I'm just wondering, why do you take that time? I just feel like I couldn't tell an assistant, I need you to go pick up my dry cleaning. I feel guilty, you know, and the truth is that the research is something I want to do myself and the writing I have to do myself. And so I don't know that I would have enough to keep an assistant busy other than organizing my travel plans. But, you know, for me, it's really important that people know I am listening to them and, uh, and I care about what they say, that I'm grateful to all of my readers because I really am. And it doesn't take a lot, honestly, to read an email and to send back a couple of lines saying, thank you so much for reading my book. I'm so glad it made you feel this way or it brought you peace. And it's validating, I think, for readers to know that the writers care about them. I also think in today's world, it is critically important that readers know writers are listening and watching because there is this resurgence now of writers being tagged in really negative reviews of them being slammed by readers left and right on social media. And hey, you know what? We may be writers, but we're also human and that hurts. And it's really important, I think, to remember that when you are criticizing something that someone might've spent years writing, it may not have been your cup of tea, but that doesn't mean it's terrible necessarily. You know, Maybe you can restore some humanity. I don't know. That's a big order, but I'll try. <laughs> So it's fair to say you're one of the biggest fish yeah. in one of the biggest ponds of best-selling writers, but I know you live in a small town. I do. So, yeah. So I've wondered, what's that like to be a literary celebrity in a community where pretty much everybody knows everybody else? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, a lot of the times people will know me and I don't know them. Most people are so nice. You know, like if you're at the little hometown movie theater and someone wants to say, oh, I read your last book. They'll come up kind of shyly and say, hi, I just wanted to tell you, I read the book of two ways and I really loved it. Really, when you're face-to-face, -face, I can't think of any time someone's come up to say something really terrible to me face-to-face. -face. I think it's absolutely lovely. And one of the great things about being an author is nobody really cares about authors in America. We're not real celebrities. <laughs> so it's not like my privacy is ever being invaded. You know, I have one last question for you, Jody. If you were to write a six word memoir, what would it be? Nap time is for quitters. <laughs> How much sleep do you get an evening? 
not enough. Well, I know that with the premiere of Breathe and also with a new book coming out this fall, you've been more than flat out. So I want to say all the more reason, thank you for this time. And I hope you have a few moments to breathe (laughs) and enjoy our beautiful New England summer. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. You bet. Listeners, to find out more about Jody and her many books, including her forthcoming novel, Wish You Were Here, be sure to visit her website, jodypeacoat.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, jonibcole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.